Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook, hosted by Brent Pasqua, Matthew Thiel, and Joshua Winterswick of Evermont Wealth. This podcast dives deep into investment strategies, retirement planning, and current events, equipping you with the insights needed to craft a robust retirement playbook adaptable to any political or economic climate. Join Brent, Matthew, and Joshua as they guide you through the complexities of retirement planning, offering expert advice to tackle challenges. It's time to build your optimal retirement playbook. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm the founder and host, Brent Pasqua, the founder of Evermont Wealth, and I'm here with Matthew Thiel, Certified Financial Planner, and Joshua Winterswike, Certified Financial Planner. Today, we're going to talk about navigating sequence risk. And sequence risk is, you know, what happens to the market when you're potentially retiring and you're going to potentially start taking out your money from your portfolio and how impactful that can be to your actual retirement plan. Seems like something that is very impactful. Yeah, this is most retirees' biggest fear. They just don't call it sequence risk. They say, hey, what happens if the market crashes a year or two after I retire? And that's what today's show is on. Yeah, or even the year you retire. Yeah, scary. Yeah, I think the big concern is like what happens if 2008 happens again right when you're about to retire. Right. It could be very detrimental. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, how did you guys and what did you guys think of that California storm that we just experienced? I tell you, Brent, I'm still trying to dry off. Like I'm still wet. My car's a mess. My yard's a mess. It was no fun for me. Are you guys talking about the atmospheric river? Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of rain. It was bad. We did get a lot of rain, but it didn't impact my life at all. I mean, traffic <laughs> was much better. You did have to adjust your baseball practice. I did, but that happens every year. So that wasn't uncommon for this time of year. I walked in here one day with soaking wet suit pants and I had a meeting. So I'm in a meeting and my pants were completely soaked. Because my daughter threw up in the car on a rainy day, so I had to clean the car in the rain. It was awful. I like that the rest of the country does like to make fun of California, though, when like it rains. But it doesn't happen that often, and especially like it happened just, you know, last week, to where like people just aren't prepared to drive in it, to to be in it. And so when it happens, it's, you know, I guess we're, you know, can be made fun of. I think they things went to like a three-day work from home during that span. Yeah, there was like no one on the road. It was beautiful. I was like, came to work, no traffic. It was nice out there. I did see so many accidents though. Accidents and potholes. Yeah, a yeah, lot of potholes. Yeah. It's just it's just not milk for, for all that rain. Yeah. And the freeways in certain parts are just collecting so much water. It was like a little pond that you'd have to drive through. It was awful. Awful. Well, well, at least we got more water and our plants got watered. Two two very different takes, though. <laughs> Brent, not affected at all. <laughs> Matt, awful. <laughs> he was wet. He's still wet and he's still drying off. So so if you're the tiebreaker, I mean, <laughs> was it bad or not bad? You know what? It's like everything. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was some pretty good rain, you know, but it wasn't, I don't think, awful. All right. So let's get in the headlines. Matthew, what do you have for us? All right. So our first headline, we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve meeting. It happened a week ago. And what ended up happening is the Federal Reserve said, hey, we're not going to cut interest rates quite yet. A lot of people had expected them to cut, but they put that on pause and said they're going to hold rates where they are. And, you know, I think the Fed's in a really interesting spot because the markets price these cuts in, but the economy is still pretty strong. 
Like, who were the people that were predicting there were going to be cuts? The bond market, basically. So uh, I guess Wall Street, uh, upper echelon Wall Street guys. Yeah, and so it became very clear that that they missed the mark on that. Like, it sounded like it wasn't even close for them to cut rates. Right. So then when they came out and said, hey, like, we're not cutting rates, probably not going to happen in the first quarter, the market kind of sold off. And then, you know, they did the press conference and pal kind of lifted spirits a little bit. But what I'd be afraid of is that they cut rates and housing prices, everything's going to go bananas again mm-hmm. because there's so many people who are waiting on the sidelines for, you know, rates to get cut. I think that's the balancing act though, right? It's like the expectation to cut rates was to prevent the upcoming bad data. And the data actually is pretty good, like you had just mentioned. So, you know, how do they balance that rate cut without it going into a recession, right? That's the whole worry is to avoid the recessionary period that's potentially looming. But I I feel like the Federal Reserve up to this point has actually done a pretty good job. I don't know how you guys feel. I think they've been criticizing them throughout that they don't know what they're talking about, but they essentially avoided a complete recession. Yeah, soft landing, I mean, it's it's here. We're we're in it now. If we're looking at it, you know, from the rears. They were behind the curve in twenty one and twenty two. I mean, well, they caught up in twenty two, right? But they were behind the curve in twenty one. But I mean, so is the administration. Biden got in office and he dropped like what, four trillion dollars onto the economy? Right. That but was what, that was so But dumb. what about now? The administration or the Fed? The Fed. Well, they're doing a pretty good job now. They've caught up. I think their biggest risk and what they're afraid of, I'm actually afraid of this too is that inflation picks up again. Agree. And prices start going higher. Yeah, and that's that's where my thought would be is people are now saying, okay, well, they're not going to cut rates in March. Now we're looking at June. I don't, how are they going to cut rates in June? Because then you run that exact risk. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe they anticipate the data to keep softening. But I mean, if it doesn't, they're not going to cut, then the market's going to get mad. And by mad, I mean, it's going to sell off. And didn't we just see them post like the day after they said they're not going to cut rates, like 300 and something thousand new jobs? Yeah, strong jobs, strong GDP. Everything's strong right now. Strong wage growth. Like the risk is for inflation right but now. But on the other side of that, though, too, we do see layoffs in a lot of different pockets. So it's kind of, it's kind of you know, industry dependent where you're picking the data from. That's true. I know it's a lot on tech and media. A lot of white collar jobs are being lost right now. But it seems like a lot of people thought and and predicted that the Federal Reserve wasn't going to cut rates till the end of this year anyway. Right, and that's why was it such a surprise to so many? I think it was just like the people who were hoping for rate cuts. Right. You know, maybe real estate market, <laughs> um, things like that, that, you know, people who are just really like bold up and really wanting the market to even price in additional rate cuts for those rates to come down with the expectation that the market was going to explode. But I, I really, in my opinion, I never really had the thought that rates cuts were coming at the beginning of the year from what, you know, they were expressing, the Federal Reserve was. I mean, every real estate person that I've talked to have said the same thing. They've had a bad two-year stretch. Mm -hmm. There's just not the inventory, not the selling going on. Nobody's moving. It seems hard to get a deal right now. And to maneuver rates, it's just really, I I mean, I feel for them in that capacity to have rates at three, four percent, and now you're having to place people in new homes at eight percent. That's a really tough discussion and a really tough sell for that whole industry. I could get the real estate market moving. Come up with a pro- come up with a program called Take Your Rate With You. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And you get to take your mortgage rate with you to a new house. I, I've never understood why that doesn't happen. I'm sure there's a lot of legal areas about that, but I don't understand why that doesn't happen. Follow the money, man. Every time you refinance your house, the amount of dollars that goes into that, into even a transaction of you moving, how many people does that affect? How many people does that cut out just from just from real estate? Oh, a lot. Escrow, the lender, all of that. But even if you had, let's say you're buying a $1 million house and you had already a loan on your previous house for a half million dollars, you had a balance, you could take that loan and then take a new loan on the new half million. And now you're not getting a whole loan for the whole house. But you have a first and a second that you've kind of been grandfathered into the rate with. Oh, that's cool. Like a blended loan. Yes. I mean, I, I don't understand why they don't come up with more creative ways to have people keep moving forward in life. People are so creative and so is Wall Street. I imagine they're thinking of it and they're working on the product behind the scenes. Because like Joshua, it's a big industry. What's our other headline? Let's talk about Facebook, also known as Meta. They came out with some good earnings, probably the best earnings out of the Magnificent Seven, which is, I'll, I'll probably forget one of them, but it's Amazon, Tesla, Apple, NVIDIA, Facebook, and Google, right? Is that seven? Yeah, that's seven. And they, they said a couple interesting things. The first thing that I thought was really interesting that Meta said was that they're having a dividend for the first time. And so I think only Apple pays a dividend, correct? out of the mag seven so that nvidia does too so they're joining those three companies and in, in having a dividend and then they also said and this kind of goes off of what we were talking about last time on the podcast about those apple goggles that they're i think they call it like meta reality labs or something that those goggles that you got your son for christmas yeah, for video games yeah the video game goggles is growing pretty fast so a couple of interesting things from that quarter but overall, those seven companies are making so much money. They're the only companies driving the S&P 500 growth right now. The Meta goggles, the Meta, Meta Quest, is a completely different price point than the Vision Pros. They're not even in the same range. Yeah, I, I, we could go buy, I think, 20 Vision Pro, of 20 Meta Quests for a price of one Vision Pro. How much right? are the Meta Quests? They can be anywhere from 250 to... 600, I think. And then the Vision Pros are about anywhere from 35 to 4,000. Yeah. Most, it sounds like most people who are buying Vision Pros with the add ons and everything are spending about five grand. But everybody criticized Meta for a, a long time just from heading over to virtual reality and kind of their business structure and then re, retooling their company. And they seem to be doing pretty well. Yeah. I mean, it comes out right now with issuing a dividend, the best earnings, like Matt mentioned. I think that the Vision Pro from Apple actually helps them because a lot of the reviews from the Vision Pro are like, those MetaQuest virtual reality goggles aren't that far off from the Vision Pro. So if you're looking for like a discounted product, you know, you're going to attract a lot more people because of your price point from, from Meta. So I think that they're in a really unique spot. But then also with their emergence of they're using AI for all of their Google ads now, that was like a big part of you know, the story for this earnings is that artificial intelligence is now being implemented even into the marketing and ad strategies that they're using for their platforms, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah. And the stock was up 20%. Because they're running lean as a company right now. Yeah. They're laying off a lot of people. Because I don't think, I, I could be wrong, but I would feel like Facebook as like the social media platform probably phases out at some point. I don't know, man. A lot of users. 
Yeah, and they have Instagram. Instagram's cool. I like Instagram. Yeah, it's true. And then, you know what a lot of people are using is another product they own called WhatsApp. That's really popular for like messaging, especially like if you have a buddy overseas and you but want to talk to them, it sounds like it's WhatsApp. It's really good for international communication. But that doesn't mean that Facebook stays around now. But see, what we're forgetting True. about Facebook though is that like they have communities and there's a lot of big communities on, that use Facebook. That's like a different, unique service than like Instagram is. But even Facebook Marketplace, I mean, I don't know if you guys use that, but I know it's really popular and it's like an offer up, but through Facebook that a lot of people use. So it is kind of unique compared to Instagram. I don't I'm I'm just not as, you know, strong on it going away. It's because just in, of those reasons. It is interesting to me how MySpace back in the day when it started, when it wanted to be like a Facebook, didn't evolve. And then you look at Facebook and how much they completely evolved and now look at where they're at. Mm-hmm. My, MySpace is gone. MySpace is gone. Hey, MySpace was cool. You could list your top friends and put music on your profile. I thought that was pretty cool. It lasted for a little bit and Facebook <laughs> took over. If anybody who's like under 25 is listening to this podcast, they're going to have no idea what MySpace was. They won't, but they'll know, you know, there's always some founding father companies that led to them having things like TikTok. What was it That's called true. before? Fr- Friendster? Uh, I think so. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's get in the retirement planning corner. Let's get into some sequence risk and understanding what the risk can be to not only your financial plan, but to your retirement could also be a risk to your livelihood, to how you create expenses, how it impacts your portfolio. Let's get into that. Tell us a little bit, Matt, about what is sequence risk. So sequence risk is basically the risk that impacts your investment return when you go to retire that will impact your withdrawals. And that's kind of a mouthful. So I think it's easier to look at an example. Let's go back to 2007. Economy's flying high, housing market's still pretty strong, but there's some cracks in the market. Say you roll over your money, it's a million bucks. You're set to retire. Your advisor tells you you could withdraw 4%, like we talked about on our last podcast. That's 40 grand a year. Great. This is all fine and dandy. A few months later, 08 happens and the market starts to go down, and you're still withdrawing that 4%. Your portfolio still keeps dropping. The market's down, what, 30, 40% at its peak in 2008? Right. Your million bucks is now 600000 because you've been withdrawing too. That's sequence risk. Yeah, so that you can't control market timing. Not at all. And you probably are going to control when you do potentially retire. I mean, some people retire earlier or later than what they projected, but you're never going to know what the market's going to do as you make that transition. No, no, never. And what's crazy too about sequence risk is it kind of works in both directions, meaning you would rather be safer in the early years of retirement and more risky in the later years of retirement because it's going to impact you less. Correct. You could also make the argument timing is everything with this though. Right. And it's just like gardening. You know, you plant at the wrong time and it could ruin the whole harvest. Right. Right. I guess this is what really like sequence risk is related to. Right, because if you take, let's say, two retirees that have pretty much identical risk or de- identical sequences in the market, and in example one, they start off with a positive return, and in example two, they start off with a negative return, but they have the same sequence. You just kind of flip them upside down. The one that starts off with a negative return is much, much more likely to run out of money 
than the one who has negative returns in their last years of life. Yes. You have to be very careful, I think, what happens in those first few years because that may or may not determine, you know, how long your money lasts. Yeah, and you and like you said, you saved the same. Like you did your part, and unfortunately, this variable you can't control could really affect your outcome. I remember we ran a study years and years and years ago with that exact example where you had the same sequence of returns, just one was flipped upside down, and one started with a positive couple of years, and one started with a negative couple of years, and one completely ran out of money. And then in a, in a relatively short amount of time, you know, 10, 12, 13 years, and the other one's money lasted and had plenty of money left over to go to inheritance. I remember the study. Yeah, me too. And, and, you know, I guess it goes back to what we were talking about in the last podcast. You know, if you're ultra conservative, your best strategy for retirement might just be living frugally, living on your social security and your pension for the first few years and letting your portfolio continue to grow. It's uh, probably not ideal for, you know, your lifestyle. But, you know, it could work because basically what's impacting this is, you know, the withdrawal portion, right? And not having a flexible withdrawal strategy. But I think we're going to get into some strategies about also protecting against those first few years without not having to not touch it. Yeah, yeah, we are. Brent, do you have an example for us? Yeah. So let's say somebody begins withdrawing on a million dollars, 4% annually. And the portfolio enters a downturn in the market, experiencing a 20% decline in the first year, which could be just a, a modest decline and then a modest decline in year two. Due to the early losses and subsequent withdrawals for cost of living, you could at that point never recover because of those withdrawals. You never get back to that original high point of the market. And the portfolio would deplete faster because of that sequence of those losses and returns and because you were taking out of money. You know what this example reminds me of? This this sounds like 2021, 2022, right? Like, so if you in, retired at the end of 21, you got in in 22 and everything went down, right? 90% of all funds were down. You know, a 60-40 portfolio, even if your advisor had you balanced, probably lost 16%. You just retired. You're not going to be happy. I know we had a few clients who weren't very happy in 2022. But luckily, things recovered in 23. That's the difference, right? Is we didn't have that back-to-back negative years like that happened during the dot-com crash. Right. And, but the challenge, too, with that is, is, yes, you could say looking back, 23 did recover. But if you take the data back to October of 23, the market was still down and hadn't recovered very much. And you're 22 months now into retirement, taking out money potentially, and your portfolio being down 15, let's call it percent. That could be detrimental to somebody's retirement. Yeah, and your fixed income was down. Like like Matt said, 90% of funds were down. You had no really safe haven to pull money from at that time. And so it t- it's taking you so long to recover from both stocks and bonds. Now, you take that same example, and somebody retires at, you know, the summer of 2023, when they've been putting money into their 401k, they make the transition, all of a sudden, the market goes on an absolute rip from October to January, and all of a sudden now they're retiring and they've had a, what, potentially a 20% increase in that short amount of time. And now they start taking out money start of the year. They're living great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in such a small time frame, right? 2021 20, at the end, maybe to 2023 in the summer, 
and two drastically different, you know, starts to retirement. That's a good point because the market sells off on average 10% every year, right? There'll be one, what we call 10% correction. And someone who retires and hits that correction perfectly is going to have a different outcome than someone who retires and maybe a month or two later who puts, gets their money in right at the bottom, right? Right. So yeah, it's everything. And it could even be in smaller increments like monthly increments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I think there's, there's strategies that you have to implement that could minimize or negate a lot of the downside risk here. But you can't just be flying blind going into retirement thinking that you're going to pull the 4% rule and nothing's going to happen. Anybody who's retired is going to experience a very drastic downturn in the market multiple times. Our listeners who listened to last week are going to be like, oh, you guys, some of the 4% rule is perfect. Now you're telling me to caution on it. And this is where my example comes in. It's kind of that lack of flexibility. Right. So it doesn't necessarily have to be you're just preparing for a big downfall. But, you know, even if you have a well-planned portfolio that you plan to last 30 years and you have your, you know, withdrawal fixed amount that you're going to adjust for inflation annually, regardless of the market performance, and you're going to keep that withdrawal percentage after a few years of market performance and not adjusting those withdrawals to actually reflect the difference in market returns could really compromise the portfolio's longevity. Because again, you're not adjusting the withdrawal percentage to the fluctuations of the portfolio, let's say after three or four bad years. So like one strategy maybe you can implement, like you're, I think this is what you're saying, is maybe you lower your withdrawals. Yeah, or, that, you're, or you're not withdra- lowering your withdrawals through down periods, taking out a higher percentage withdrawal rate from that portfolio because your account value is decreased. So instead of being at four, you're at six or seven. Correct. Yeah, that's not good. And another thing I think that ends up happening, and, and this is a primetime example of what happened probably to a lot of retirees in the 2000, 2002 bear market. I know, Brent, I think you started your career around that time. I was still in high school back then. But Are you calling me old? You're a little <laughs> bit older than us, yeah. But I was no, in high school too. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple year age gap. Yeah, there is. You're the senior of the, of the group. It's true. You don't look it though. I mean, I clearly look like the oldest person here. I'm still not at age where I can get the AARP discount, but I'm closing in fast. Yeah, when you when both of you pull into the parking lot and you guys get out of your cars, I definitely think Matt's older than you. Yeah, yeah most people do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let me get into my example here. And so let's look at that 2000, 2002 bear market, right? Let's say you retired then and we just got three negative years of markets in a row, right? And so then you're you're pulling out your money. You're still taking that 4% or 5%, whatever your advisor told you or whatever, you read online that was good, but you're having to sell shares every year at a loss when it's it's not the best strategy. Because what you really want to do in the market is buy low, sell high. But you're you're flipping it. You're you bought high and you're selling low. So you're chipping away at these shares every time. It's going to take that much longer for your portfolio to come back when the market does recover. I think it's very, very possible if someone did not have a good advisor during that 2000, 2002 bear market. And if they were withdrawing from their portfolio to have never made it back to even by the time 08 happens. Right. So then they hit 08 and my guess would be it took them till 13, 14 or 15 
to get back to that original amount if they retired in 2000 or 2001. If they ever did, because if they were taking withdrawals during that whole time period, there's a good chance they never even got back to that point. That's my thought. That's true. I thought they never recovered. And, And here, let me, like a lot of people make fun of diversification. They think it's stupid. And they're like, why am I not in just the best performing stuff? Like this making the most amount of money. And you see a lot of this on social media too. And the NASDAQ in 2000, 2002 fell from peak to trough 78%. And that was like the hot investment that everybody wanted, right? We want to be in internet stocks. We want to be in the Intels, the Microsofts, the Cisco. 78% fall. If your retirement funds are in that, you're done. It's over. You're not retiring. We see a lot of, I feel like when people reach out to us, still a lot of stories around that period and also 2008, right? It was either their parents or they had an aunt and uncle or a neighbor. They lost everything. And there's still like in it's 2024, there's still a lot of talk about both of those time frames for people. Like, so people haven't forgotten that those times were bad and, you know, we can even see it today. Financial market PTSD. Yeah. Absolutely. We don't spend, you know, a tremendous amount of time in client reviews just talking about how we're micromanaging selling positions in a down market to create income for the client because there's so many complexities with it that we're handling that all internally and we're always doing that for each individual client. But I think it is an understated value that an advisor provides to have the wherewithal to know what to sell, when to sell, why you're selling it. Because what we did is when we, in 2022 and and throughout 23, we weren't selling large quantities of shares to have this money sitting on the sidelines so that they could take their monthly income. We were just micro selling shares as, as little as possible to get just what they needed out because we knew the bounce and recovery was gonna happen. It wasn't matter if, it was just a matter of when. And we now know when it happened. It happened in, at the end of October. But had we put, you know, 12 months into reserves for them in the money market account, they don't make that balance of the recovery like they did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Josh, what are some strategies that we could use here to work to mitigate sequence risk? The first one that, that really comes to mind, and you've already mentioned it, but it, it is just diversification, right? You, you had just mentioned that. But I'll start there with making sure your portfolio is diversified. That's going to alleviate, you know, systematic risk, which we already love, but it's going to give you options through different market conditions for what Brent just mentioned as well of what to sell, right? A lot of people don't think about, you know, when I create income, I'm going to need to sell some of these investments. That's not the first thought. So turning that portfolio into income, having diversification gives you options in different market conditions to actually not sell, you know, positions that are either down or that you have higher growth potential for. And this is going to protect you in, in ta- different times that the markets are, you know, up or down. I think the biggest con to diversification is a, really a mental block that people have. Because if you're, if someone's telling you they're going to diversify you, like, oh, I'm well diversified. That means you're not making a lot of money or as much money as you could be making if you were betting on single assets. Mm-hmm. And I think some people struggle with that. And that's why they want to continue to take risk in retirement because they're more about making money instead of preserving their capital and enjoying their retirement. And here's where another challenge actually comes in because there are these studies saying that people are going to live longer, which means that you would either have to work longer in your life 
or your money is going to have to last you a longer period of time. So they're saying potentially the 60-40 portfolio is not a sufficient portfolio because you're going to need more stocks. So now you say, okay, well, maybe the the new strategy is a 70-30 portfolio. But you throw the 70-30 portfolio in here, you talk about the 4% rule, and now you talk about sequence risk. I would not want to be sitting in a 70-30 when the market drops 20% and mm-hmm. taking income. Yeah, and no, that's going to wipe you out you know, an extra 5% at least compared to a 60 Unless you're willing to go back to work. Yeah, And to me, the <laughs> only way to offset this type of risk is to have a detailed plan and very clear communication, what's happening within your financial retirement plan, what's happening in your portfolio. You have a good advisor that has oversight on it. Because if not, I think this presents an even bigger challenge. I think there's also like for clients, there's a lot of FOMO. So when you look at your portfolio and you're seeing, you know, your large equity, you know, mutual fund grow at the rate it's growing. And you're even looking at your fixed income and you're comparing them, you know, 13% against two or 3%. You're like, why don't I have all of my money inside of equities or in stocks? Like there's the fear of missing out on the good times and I want more of them. And I feel like there's always factors out there that are like tempting us to get rid of the diversification. And that can be a really, you know, a situation where that relates to an unsuccessful retirement if you, you know, act on those feelings and that fear of missing out. Yeah, so it's, it's a good and bad thing in a way. Yeah, and it's all, diversification to me as an advisor is like, I'm always saying sorry. I think Michael Kitz has said that, but. <laughs> I, I think the most controversial strategy that mitigates sequence risk is annuities. Yeah, this is a perfect time for an annuity sales pitch that an insurance agent would come in and tell you that solves all the problems. But I'll tell you, it will not solve any of the problems. It will just make your problems worse. Why is that? Is it because the annuity is not going higher? Is it because what is it that's causing the problem? So what we're talking about is sequent risk or risk because of market timing and returns. But we're also talking about having returns. In annuities, you're not going to have any returns. You're going to have very poor rates of returns. We've seen them historically. Cap rates are controlled by the insurance companies especially in what my primary focus is on are index annuities, fixed annuities, even a lot, most variable annuities. All these annuities that pay insurance agents and advisors commissions have very poor rates and the rates are determined by you know what's in the market, but they lock you into a contract, they control the rates. And I've seen time and time and time again, these awful rates of return that aren't even a small portion of what market returns are year over year over year. And people will think that the income strategy can be solved by annuities. Let me tell you, it does not solve it. It's only going to impact you later on in life. Right. And I think with sequence risk, that's set up uh, the way insurance advisors or insurance agents, right? They're pretty much insurance advisors act like they're financial advisors. They're not financial advisors. Well, they can be. Their advisors could be selling insurance products, but they typically do. That's true. A rabbit hole, right? Right. Um, okay. So they're setting up using, they're using sequence risk to sell. All of them do it. I, I, I've met enough of them, seen enough of the, uh, presentations from my clients. Like that's how these people are selling annuities. They're scaring them with sequence risk. Correct. We can go onto an advisor's website and read the headline of the website and we'll know exactly what products they're selling. Exactly. What I hear though is, is also with the annuities, We'll take on the risk for you, 
but you're paying us so much money that's taking away from your return that it's going to hurt you in a different way, right? So we'll take on the risk, but you're going to pay us a lot of money to do it. And there's just better ways to do it. You have interest rate risk. You have inflation risk now. You have risk after risk after risk because you're not going to make the money you need to sustain your lifestyle. But they're solving for the sequence risk. Correct. I heard those insurance companies have really good parties and retreats, though. So they got they, that going for them. They do. And they're, the insurance industry is the cash industry. They have so much money. And, you know, just like anything else, you know, you've been paying for your homeowner's policy for how long? And tell me how many times you actually called the insurance company to file a claim. Uh, so far, I have Same with auto, yeah. same with all your insurance. So let me tell you something. They're not going to pay you big returns. Because they're not in the business of paying out. Nope. They're in the business of making money on your money. Yes. Okay. So we, we got annuities out of the way. I think this strategy is a little better. This one kind of comes near and dear to my heart. If I was working with this conservative client, this is exactly what I would do. Is I would use a money market mutual fund and build a bigger cash reserve into their portfolio. And completely, this should completely alleviate all fears. Let's say it's maybe eight months or 12 months of income in the cash fund. It gains whatever the rate is. Rates jump around all the time, right? Today, they're almost at 5% for cash funds. Previously, they're at zero. It doesn't matter on the interest rate. You, there's a trade-off, right? You're trading off return for safety. Right. Uh, but if I had an ultra-conservative client, that's how I do it, and then build on a 60-40 portfolio on top of that. Seems valid to me. It worked for a lot of clients. What I'm hearing also is similar to like the bucket strategy. Oh yeah, buckets, yeah. You exactly. know, you like put buckets for different time horizons and that first bucket is a money market fund for the next 12 months and then your fixed incomes, let's just say for the next five years and then the equities are for the 10 plus years. I like that strategy. I really like bucketing money because just like mental accounting and visually, you can see it. Like here's what I have for now, here's what's for later and here's what's for the far future. But I think that that's a good strategy also to alleviate some sequence risk and also just for retirement planning. So how do you plan for the unknown? Well, I think that's where we come in. You know, you hire a good financial planner. Hopefully they have a CFP so you know they've been trained properly. And, you know, there's multiple things we do to help our clients. You know, my angle, one of my the favorite things I do is like I like to try and teach clients. Like if you, I feel like if the more educated you are, the more you can know, and then the more you don't worry when these things happen. For instance, let's take what we're actually talking about. We're talking about something that's happened six times since 1926. What is that? What do you mean? The market being down 20% or more. Six times since 1926 that's happened. Yeah. So that's less than, let's call it 8% of the time. Exactly. And I think once you tell that to people, they're like, oh, wow, I, I didn't realize it doesn't happen that frequently. We basically went from the 70s until the 2000s without a 20% or more decline in the stock market. That's a long period of time. It's bananas. I mean, if you look at market data, the market is up generally three out of every four years. And if that's the case, should people even worry about sequence risk? I don't know if you need to worry about it when you're looking at the data as much, but it has to be planned for. Yes. You Just like every other risk that that's comes with retirement. And I think, you know, you were talking about strategies to like help. And I think that being proactive, right. Continuing to 
review your financial plan, reviewing your portfolio, being proactive is going to really help with avoid some of these big risk factors that come throughout retirement. So staying on, on, top, of, on top of it, just like anything you're going to be successful with, right? And I, I think where the future of like financial advice and financial planning is going is more towards that coaching angle where we're kind of helping clients avoid these bad habits, avoid the things that they know they shouldn't be doing, but they really want to do. For example, you know, let's say you go through a big market correction and your portfolio is down, but you see this house you really want to buy, right? You want to, you want to upgrade. It's a bigger house. It's a little nicer than you have. You've been waiting for it, but it's going to require a significant portion of your retirement savings to, to close the deal. You know, do you do that? Do you not do it? I mean, it's situation based, but as advisors, our job is to kind of play that sounding board, listen, and then walk you through your financial plan to see if it actually makes sense or if it's going to end up harming you in retirement. It could work both ways. I've seen it work both ways. You know, what I hear you say is, is also, you know, working on different scenarios, being proactive and planning for these future events instead of us just continuing to like repair the bad decisions, yeah. right? Like a, instead of like a treatment or a prescription for, you know, an event or a bad habit that you had before that we're fixing, we're actually working on the future and proactively planning to help you then achieve those goals and work on different strategies. Yeah. You're like plugging a hole on a boat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead we're on the boat together exactly. on a cruise. And I think what cruising. we've, we've done a lot of, and I think what's important for clients to do, especially in these scenarios is do tax planning. Yeah. Because you may need, let's just call it to make numbers simple, $3,000 a month from your portfolio. But if you're taking out of your IRA, you may be taking 4,000 out to get your three because you got to pay taxes. In a bad sequence of market timing, and if you have a very good financial plan, you're maybe only having to take three out because you're taking it from the right type of accounts, you're selling the right shares, you're not creating phantom income. Like you're doing a lot of things fundamentally and structurally within your portfolio and within your financial plan to mitigate you from having to sell more shares. Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, the flip side is, is maybe you have lower tax rates or something for a few years and you could pull some money out at a different tax rate than you, than you would in the future. So yeah, tax plan is really important. It's adding value and it's not adding it in a rate of return, which you can't control way from the investment portfolio. You're preserving money, which is adding value to the overall plan, which is helping your net worth. Yep. What are your final thoughts? So final thoughts, you know, a sequence risk is really scary and I understand why it's scary. But if you go in with a flexible mindset when you retire and you're willing to make adjustments, sequence risk is nothing to fear. However, if you're not flexible, you have a, a set mindset and you're not willing to make changes, then yeah, sequence risk could really be a big deal. So, you know, it's really just person by person and, you know, make sure this is something you're going through with, with your financial advisor and, and they understand it. I relate it to like landing a plane, you know, the flight's all easy, you're flying and you're coming up to retirement and that takes some concise planning and skill to land that plane and avoid a crash on the landing mat, right? And it, you know, most planes land, right? Flying's relatively pretty safe, but... I think that, you know, you need to have a plan and you need to lay this out so you can glide into your landing safely. 
And sometimes when you're on that plane, the door falls off. Like on that Alaska Airlines. I know. I, I, my analogy, I was like, oh, my plane analogy. I'm looking forward to this. Then I'm like, ah, oh, there's a lot of like kind of bad stories out there right now. But we know that flying is relatively safe. It's actually safer than driving. Hey, the the plane still landed safely. And no one got hurt. There you go. Yeah, I, I think this is a, 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 a portion of retirement planning that is extremely delicate. It's very complicated. It does take detailed and thorough planning. And if you're heading towards retirement without thinking about or solving for this already, you could be putting yourself at tremendous risk. It needs to be thought out. It needs to be looked at. You need to have detail to the plan to know what you're going to do in case this happens. Because let me tell you something, we'll be sitting here a year, two, three, or four from now, and we'll talk, be talking about the downturn in the market and how it's impacting people's retirement. And you don't want that. So yeah, plan ahead. Recommends? Yeah. Yeah. That was a good segment. Okay. Recommends is you guys want me to go first? Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Did you guys watch the Waste Management Open? I haven't really been watching it now. When is it? So it's a Super Bowl weekend. Yep. And it's a golf tournament in the desert in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it's like the only golf tournament that is just a full blown party. But it's awesome to watch. I want to go. I've never been. I want to go because it just looks so fun. It is like complete off opposite of like normal golf tournament. I mean, they have stands around like, you know, some of the signature holes and they're yelling and cheering and having a good time. I think like Post Malone performed at this one and like it just looks like a really fun event that I eventually want to go to. So basically what you're saying is golf needs to make every event like this is what I'm hearing. I don't know if every event, cause you like, you know, masters are like, it's serious. It's like, you know, yeah, the all majors. the majors, like yeah. tradition, it's tradition. It's serious. I mean, maybe add a couple more like this. Cause you know, every year now, since I got into golf, like I watch this event cause I think it's just awesome and everyone's having fun and now I want to go. So hopefully one of these years upcoming, I'm going to, I'm going to get out there. Because that's the problem with the PGA right now, right? Like the the majors are serious and everybody wants to play those, meaning the professional golfers. Mm-hmm. But all the other events are kind of like, ah, eh, we'll set these out. Yeah, and I think one of the, the backlash to the PGA is like they're not doing anything to make the fan experience better. But they have like a perfect example of like a fun event that people are going to. I mean, you watch how many people are there. There's no lack of selling tickets to that waste management open. So maybe do some more of that. Bring yeah, them to California. We should go in here. That'd be fun. Yeah, it seems like a seems like a really good time. And I think outside of like the major PGA tournaments, this is a tournament to go to. Oh, absolutely. And so my recommends is if you haven't watched it, you should definitely tune in. Probably make you want to go like me. <laughs> yeah. Or you can search for it on social media, right? See yeah. Kind of the can... videos you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So my recommend, I watched a movie on Netflix called Dumb Money. And it's about the GameStop. Um, saga that happened in 2021 when there's that short squeeze when the stock started shooting up and everyone was trading on Robin Hood. And, you know, it really captured the nation. Everybody was talking about it. You guys remember? Yeah. Yeah. Good, really good movie. It's not a documentary. So, like, Seth Rogen's in it. I, I can't say her first name, but I think her name is Shyla Woodley. Yeah. Did she date Aaron Rodgers? Yeah. That girl. Yeah. Yeah. She's in it. Pretty good movie. I enjoyed it. It's a nice What's watch. What's the guy with the glasses? What's his name? I, I saw I saw who's in it. I don't know his name, but he's the guy who plays Roaring Kitty. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a client that recommended that I watch it, so I have to watch that. Since so was it good? It was good. It was enjoyable. Very easy watch. 
It's not it seems heavy like they got a lot of like actors though to be in that movie. It's like not just a you know one big name or nobodies. Yeah, they did, and it's another one of those like secret sleeper hits where the movie did nothing in theaters. It was picked up by Netflix and put on their streaming service, and now it's one of the most popular movies in the U.S. When did it come out on Netflix? It must have just been. I think a couple recently? weeks ago I okay. saw it. Yeah, I'll have to watch that. So good movie. I recommend it. My recommend is going back to an old American company. If you're looking for something stylish to wear, I feel like Nike is just thriving right now. They are bringing cool shoes back. I don't know. For me, I felt like there was a dead period with Nike where they just weren't as cool. They were just making a lot of things that were just stylish, not cool to me. Now, and maybe I'm just getting older, but I see no matter what, young and old, if you want to look like you have a cool style or outfit on, if you put a fresh pair of Nikes on, to me, it's the business now. I like that. It, do, do you? I like, like that you, you're like you're turning into like somewhat of a sneakerhead. I don't feel like I'm a sneakerhead, but I think that they're they are dominating continuously, and it's amazing that they've been able to do it. The shoe game for this many years. Yeah, well, streetwear is really hot right now. Like, if you're watching any any show, like, you know, leading up to the Super Bowl, all the analysts and stuff, they're wearing Nikes with suits now. Right. Like that's that's the style. Yep. No one's wearing dress shoes anymore. Yeah, you got fresh dunks on with your fitted suit, and that's kind of the look. Yeah, so. But it's just amazing to me that they're able to reinvent themselves continually to keep up with trends and styles and keep them on top of the shoe game for as long as they have. I've always just been a Nike guy. It was passed down from my grandpa who's always like a Nike guy and I've always just worn Nikes and I I pretty amazed like you that like they just continue like you said to keep pumping out really cool shoes with tons of style and stay at the top of the game yeah so if you're out there looking for a new pair of shoes just go on Nike website grab your house pair a pair of new shoes and you know be fresh out there you're gonna have to post some pairs of uh your new Nikes yeah yeah, put them on the company Instagram. There you go. All right, so we have an announcement too here. Uh, we are continuing and currently uh, accepting new clients. If you'd like to schedule an appointment with any of us, please go to evermont.com and schedule a complimentary consultation. If you'd like our show notes, please go to retirementplanplaybook.com. But as always, thank you for listening to Retirement Plan Playbook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Retirement Plan Playbook. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay updated, please click the subscribe button for notifications on new episodes. For personalized financial guidance or to connect with our team, you're welcome to call us at 909-296-7977 or visit www.evermont.com for a complimentary consultation. Your journey towards a successful retirement plan continues and we are here to help every step of the way. Until next time, keep building your future. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Evermont Wealth. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.